Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're continuing in our exposition of this wonderful book. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12. <clears throat> Before I read that um, section of Scripture for us, I want to catch us up by context to review where Peter has been. Catch us up by way of context where we are after a brief introduction. In the first two verses, Peter goes on in verses 3 through 5 to describe to us the wonderful salvation that we have. Um, It is amazing what we have as believers in Christ. We have an inheritance that's waiting for us, as verse 4 says. And this inheritance is a perfect inheritance, which is imperishable. Nothing will ever break in heaven. It is undefiled. Nothing unclean will be in heaven. It is unfading. Nothing in heaven will ever lose its luster. Our inheritance is guaranteed. We have a reservation waiting for us in heaven, as verse 4 says. In fact, we are guaranteed entrance there because God is protecting us and guiding us and guarding us around. So, Just His hands and wings around us so we can be right there in heaven someday to enjoy it is guaranteed. It's the best place you can ever think of. It's the best place we're going to be. And we are going to be there. And it's all by His grace. It's the gift of His mercy. It says in verse 3, that's according to His great mercy that God has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through the resurrection of Jesus that we can know eternal life and have this hope. As God in His mercy regenerates us, causes us to be born again. And what that causes us to do is, verse 3, causes us to rejoice and praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Peter starts. He talks about our glorious salvation we have. And he says that and he paints that picture like that for a purpose because then coming in 6 and 7, he talks about the situation in life in which these people found themselves in. We find that these people are, are suffering But in their suffering, their salvation is so great that in the midst of their suffering, they have reason to rejoice. Look at verse 6. In this now you greatly rejoice. It's easy to rejoice in in a salvation like that. But then he says, you're rejoicing even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. In other words, what Peter is saying is he's saying that this ultimate salvation we have is so great that it will give you sufficient reason through the trials and difficulties you face in life to rejoice greatly. Ultimately bringing great glory and honor to God, as it says in verse 7. As you demonstrate God to be worthy of all praise, not only when things go well, but also when things are going poorly, God is to be given great honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 8 and 9, in which we were at last week, we see this... Hope is unseen. And though you have not seen Him, is what Peter says, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. But this inheritance is so good, even though it's unseen, it's our faith that believes that we have these things and we can rejoice greatly with that. In fact, the expression of rejoicing in verse 8 is tremendous. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And why is it that we can rejoice so well? Because verse 9 says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We know what's on the other end. And with a view towards the end, 
we can handle the middle. As we come to verse 10 this morning, the, uh, the theme of verses 10 through 12 is mentioned right there in the first few words, the first phrase. He says, ask to this salvation. It's titled my message this morning, ask to the salvation, because this is Peter's point. He's going to talk about salvation. And in many ways, this is exactly like he did in verses 3 through 5. He's going to talk again about how great and grand and glorious is our salvation that we have in Christ. But it is interesting here in verses 10 through 12, he doesn't describe it like he did in verses 3 through 5. In verses 3 through 5, he describes the wonderful nature of, of heaven and what it's going to be like. And now in 10 through 12, he's going, to, he's going to describe how great heaven is, not by describing heaven, but by looking at it from the vantage point of people who anticipated our salvation. Prophets and angels long the salvation. So overall, Peter's argument goes like this. If the prophets longed, for the salvation that you experience today, shouldn't you rejoice in it? And if the angels are, are stooping to look at your salvation, shouldn't you realize what a great treasure you have? And if, as you realize then the greatness of your salvation, it will help you in the day of trial. It's Peter's argument. Peter's argument is a bit like a, a parent that um, is dealing with a child who's refusing to eat anything. Parents, maybe you've used the excuse. Kids, maybe you've had this excuse before where mom says to Jimmy, Jimmy, there are starving children in Africa who would love to eat what's on your plate, so eat it up. Parents, have you ever used that argument before? Maybe never. Kids, have you ever heard that argument said? Yeah, maybe more, more hands are going up when the kids are, are hearing that argument. That's what Peter's saying. But rather than using starving children... He speaks about longing prophets and inquisitive angels. Rather than talking about food, Peter's talking about the salvation that's set before us. Listen, if the prophets and angels long to have what you have, ought we not to cherish it? That's his argument. And see as I read through this how he develops that argument. Verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the Gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. By way of outline this morning, I want us to consider our salvation from the vantage point of the prophets and the angels. Because that's what Peter does. He says, okay, let's think about what the prophets viewed our salvation as. Then he also talks about, let's view what the angels thought about our salvation. So first of all, the prophets wrote of grace. We see that there in verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Being moved by the Holy Spirit, these prophets spoke from God. And when they spoke, they spoke a message of grace that would come. This is how Peter summarized the message of the apostles, the prophets. When the prophets preached and spoke and wrote, they preached a message of coming grace. Now, when you think about the prophets, is that what you think of? The grace that would come. If you're anything like me, you usually think of the prophets preaching coming judgment. And in fact, indeed, it's true. Much of the ink the prophets spilled as they wrote the Old Testament 
was focused on the coming judgment upon those nations who rebelled against the Lord. As our family has been reading through the Scriptures this year, we spent much time in the major prophets. We've been through Isaiah this year. We've been through Jeremiah this year. We're, we're in the chapter 21, I think, of Ezekiel is, is where we are. So we work through our ways. And uh, I, I went this week to my kids, Carissa and uh, SR, and I said, kind of off the cut, they didn't know what I was going to say. I said, hey, guys, when uh, you think about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if you had to summarize this message, you know, how would you summarize this message of the prophets? And um, Krista, how would you summarize the message? Tell me what you told me the other day. Judgment. judgment. One word came out of her mouth and one word simultaneously came out of SR's mouth. Judgment. And indeed, exactly, they're right. Throughout our reading of the Old Testament, you know, every time we read, I say, okay, guys, we're going to look at this chapter and uh, whatever, Jeremiah 45, and this chapter is about judgment. And we're going to read Isaiah here now. This passage is about judgment and judgment upon Babylon and judgment upon Moab, judgment upon Damascus and Ethiopia and Egypt and Edom and Arabia and Tyre. And these judgments come hard. They're like, like ocean waves coming and coming. The judgment that's coming upon these nations are disobeyed. And Jeremiah... It's exactly like Isaiah. Judgments against Egypt and Philistia and Moab and Ammon and Babylon. And the judgment just keeps coming. In fact, even with our kids, I've encouraged them to take pencils and, and write. You know, every time certain chapters say Babylon, underline, you know, and they got all these words underlined in their chapters. Just so then when they open their Bibles next time, they say, oh, Babylon. Whoa, this is judgment against Babylon. And they can just see that again and again. And as much as these prophets focus judgment upon the nations, they also focus their judgment upon Israel as well. Isaiah's message was constant, right? You've been unfaithful to the Lord. Judgment is coming. Repent, as the message was. And Jeremiah's condemnation to Judah came so hard that he was imprisoned for preaching his message because he kept preaching to Judah. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, they're coming. <clears throat> The Caldonians, they're coming. Watch out for them. They're coming. You've got all these prophets who are preaching peace, peace. I'm telling you, there's no peace. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and he's going to rule over us. And he got thrown in jail because, one, he was discouraging the people. And second, they thought he was going to be a traitor and jump over to Nebuchadnezzar's side. It says in Jeremiah 37, verse 13, You are going over to the Chaldeans. You're going over to their side. And so he was thrown in prison as a traitor. But listen, as, as much as the prophets speak judgment, there was also great hope in the message of the prophets. It wasn't just judgment without any hope. There was a hope of the Messiah. Isaiah speaks about how this Messiah would spring forth from the stem of Jesse. How the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon this individual. How He would come and bring comfort to Israel. How He would be like a shepherd Tenderly caring for the nursing use, like, tenderly caring for Israel in his arms. This Messiah would come, wage war, rule with his might, conquer their enemies, and provide peace. So these, these uh, prophets aren't just judgment, there also is hope and peace in the coming of the Messiah. In fact, so great was this hope that when Peter thought of the message of the prophets, he thought their message to be one of coming grace. Right? Isn't that what verse 10 says? They prophesied of the grace that would come to you. You know, this wasn't the only time that Peter 
thought like this, or you can see this pattern of thinking coming about. When he originally brought the gospel to the Gentiles, he preached to Cornelius and Cornelius' friends and Cornelius' relatives. And when he preached there, he preached about how all the prophets bear witness through the name of Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. There's grace coming in in Jesus the Messiah coming and forgiveness can be found in Him. And though the prophets preached a message of coming judgment, they preached a message of hope and restoration. And when you realize how wicked Israel is, you can see how this is filled with grace in God's message coming. Listen to what Isaiah how Isaiah described Israel. This is Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah the prophet. Describing the wickedness of Israel. He said, Sons I have reared up and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He says, I cared for Israel. I nurtured Israel. I provided for Israel. And they're no better than a dumb ox. At least an ox knows where he gets his food, but Israel doesn't even know that I, it was the Lord who did all these things. And it goes on even in Isaiah chapter 1 to describe Isaiah like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then grace comes. He says in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Grace of a coming Messiah in the midst of a message of judgment. And particularly here to Israel, we see the definition of grace, unmerited favor to those who rebelled against the Lord. They rebelled greatly, Israel did. And yet God was promising to be gracious to them to bring a Messiah. You know, and that's what Peter's getting at in verses 3 through 5, 1 through 5 actually in the opening letter here. Think about how Peter describes our salvation. It's all of grace. It's all of God. Chapter 1, verse 1, he chose us to be His own. Chapter 1, verse 2, it is the work of the Spirit that sanctifies us. Chapter 1, verse 3, it is God who causes us to be born again. Verse 4, God accomplishes our salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God promises us this amazing inheritance and God assures us that we will arrive safely to inherit all of these blessings. That's the coming grace. And rightly, as Peter identified and summed up the core of the prophet's message, it's a message of grace. Well, the prophets, though, did more than uh, write of grace. The prophets also studied hard. That's what verse uh, 10, last part of verse 10, verse 11 speak about. They studied hard. These prophets made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. We see these prophets making careful searches and inquiries. We have a a new pet in our home. Actually, we've had this pet for a couple weeks now. Um, It's a praying mantis is uh, our pet. And um, we love our praying mantis. Uh, The people who gave it to us named... Her, Rocky, and um, that doesn't quite fit, so her name is Roxy, is what we call her. And um, we need to feed her crickets. 
And uh, there are times in this past week, as, as many of you know, my office is like through my garage, and then I've built a, an office in the third car garage. There have been times where I'm walking through the, through the garage, and I hear a cheep, 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 and I stop. And I have been, been getting down and trying to figure out. Now, if you know anything about crickets noise, they're deceptive. They, they're like coming from here, but they bounce off the wall somehow. It sounds like they're coming from here. You can't quite figure it out. But I, I have been down and um, listening where they are and walking real slow because if a cricket knows that you're coming, they're going to be there. And I, I've been down even literally down on all fours like this trying to say, okay, where's that noise coming from? Where's that coming from? And I thought it was coming from underneath the garage. And I, I was taking sticks and poking and prodding and trying to get these crickets coming out of here and, and listening. And, and then I kind of move some things and try to grab them. And I, I've been making careful searches and inquiries for these crickets to feed Roxy. Well, that's what these prophets did as well. They made careful searches and inquiries. That's the intensity of these words. Searches and choirs, they're practical synonyms, but it means they really sought. And as I said, they studied hard. They didn't study a textbook written by another person. They studied their own writings because they didn't quite fully understand the unfolding plan of the redemption of God, which they themselves had written. At this point, you need to realize that these prophets weren't writing on their own power or under their own authority. Rather, it was the Spirit of Christ within them Right? It says there in verse 11, seeking to know what person time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating these things. Now, the Spirit of Christ, that probably refers to the Holy Spirit um, because we know in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, how Peter wrote that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men wrote, but they were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And these people here, these prophets here, in uh, verse 11, we're being moved along by the Spirit of Christ, right? It's all, it's all the mystery of the Trinity. It's all there. But I find it interesting that here it is, the Spirit of Jesus is predicting what's going to take place in the life of Jesus. <clears throat> the passion and death of Jesus didn't come upon Him by accident. He wrote His own history. He knew what was going to take place. But in the process, as these, these prophets were, were, were moved along and wrote, they, they didn't fully understand they didn't quite fully understand who the Messiah would be. They didn't quite fully understand how it is Messiah would carry out His plan of salvation. In a very real sense, the full reality of understanding Messiah was veiled to them. It's as if they were looking for crickets with earplugs on. You can't hear it at all. Or it's as if they were searching with, with blinders over their eyes. They were searching. They heard something, but they couldn't quite figure it out. They couldn't quite find it. In fact, we'll see in verse 12 later that it was told them that you're not going to see it. There's a later generation, but who will see it? We'll get to that point in a little bit. But they were studying hard. You know, and it wasn't difficult for them to study hard either. They're easily motivated to search diligently because they knew the hope that they were after. They knew that a blessing would be available to them on the back end. You know, why would I get down on my hands and knees and listen for this cricket? Here's why. When I grabbed a cricket in my hand, I'd come in triumphant and I'd say, guys, guys, dinner! It's dinner! And uh, everyone would we'd gather around and we'd take this box and we'd say, Roxy, here you go. And we'd open the lid and we'd go... And, and all of us would be gathered around this bug box watching dinner take place. It's fascinating. 
But there's rejoicing. And so it's easy to make searches and inquiries for these crickets knowing that uh, lunch is coming. And we get to watch this lunch. It's fascinating. These guys are fast grabbing on these crickets and eating them. Now, these prophets were motivated to study a bit like a child studies a Christmas present for them that they find underneath the tree. I remember a child, being a child, carefully observing the Christmas presents under the tree. I knew full well what you're mine. I picked them up. I gazed in the sides, shook them a little bit. And if I could even sneak a little peek underneath the wrapping paper, searching inquiry. And, and, and that wasn't hard for me because I knew of the blessing that would come. Well, these prophets gladly also spent many, many hours seeking to know what person or time the Messiah would come because they knew the blessing that was coming. But they didn't know. Things were veiled to them. Now, it's not like these prophets were ignorant. We can even pick from these verses the things the prophets knew. If you look at verse 10, they knew that grace would come. If you knew verse 11, they knew that that Christ was coming. And, And they knew even verse 11 that Christ would suffer. And they knew also, verse 11, that uh, they would receive glories. But they just didn't know who or when this Messiah would be. Who this Messiah would be and when this Messiah would come. But even if you step back and think about, okay, what did they know of the prophets? Think about all the things the, the prophets knew about the coming Messiah. I just listed some things here. First of all, they knew that he would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. They knew that he would be... a a king of the kingly line of David, 2 Samuel 7. They knew that he would be a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. They knew that he would be the true shepherd of Israel, Ezekiel 34. They knew that he would come from humble beginnings, being born in the small little village of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. They knew the Spirit of the Lord would come greatly upon him, Isaiah 61, verse 1. They knew that He would come with a message of good news to the afflicted and liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, Isaiah 61.1. They knew that He would come with signs and wonders. Listen to Isaiah 35, verse 6. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. They knew that He would come ruling and reigning. They knew that He would be installed as King upon Zion, Psalm 2, verse 7. They knew that He would break the nations with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware, Psalm 2, verse 9. They knew that Messiah would be exalted to the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1. They knew that Messiah would come and crush Satan under His feet, Genesis 3:15. They also knew that Messiah would suffer as well. They knew that Messiah would be bruised on the heel, Genesis 3:15. They knew also that the Messiah would suffer as Isaiah 53 predicted. Oppressed and afflicted, taken away in judgment. A lamb led to slaughter, cut off out of the land of the living. They knew that He'd face abandonment by God, Psalm 22, verse 1. They knew that He'd be ridiculed by men, Psalm 22, verse 8. So the prophets, I mean, this is only a partial list of everything the prophets knew. The, the prophets knew some, but they didn't know everything. It's not like they didn't have any clue about what was written. It's just they didn't know the exact person of the Messiah. They didn't know the exact time when the Messiah would come. And would the truth be known, they were probably confused about how the suffering of Christ related to His glory. When you read through the Gospel accounts, you get this sense where the the disciples of Jesus, who probably represented the line of the prophets thinking in all their studies and accumulation over time, over centuries, what they could understand, 
the disciples were always confused about the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. In fact, it's almost as if they just took that sufferings and didn't believe it. Rank unbelief. Didn't believe about the sufferings of Christ. Believed only about His glory. And focused their mind on that. In fact, when Jesus shared sometimes about the coming kingdom and talked about He was going to suffer, they didn't hear the suffering part, but rather they requested prime seats in the kingdom like James and John did. They were anticipating that Jesus was going to come and conquer the Romans and establish His messianic rule. In fact, even John the Baptist is in prison and when he didn't see the kingdom coming in all its glory, he sent an entourage to Jesus and said, are you the expected one? Or should we look for somebody else? Like the kingdom doesn't look like it's coming very well, Jesus. Are you really the one? So focused were they upon the glory that they missed His suffering. The disciples were continually confused of His suffering when Peter... Jesus first revealed to the disciples, you must suffer and be killed. Peter said, may it never be. God forbid. This suffering, that can't be part of your plan, Jesus. When Jesus talked to them further about His upcoming death, we read in Mark 10, 32, that the disciples didn't understand what He said. Upcoming, I don't understand. And they were afraid to ask Him. They didn't even want to raise this issue of the suffering of the Messiah. In fact, it seems as if the disciples had no understanding of how He was going to suffer. When he's killed in Jerusalem, his disciples were confused and afraid. And I love the, the way that the conversation of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus had with Jesus, who wasn't recognized to them, really sums up the situation. These disciples were, they're downcast. Messiah, Jesus had been killed. They were hoping that he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. And yet they were downcast. But, but, but there's little hope because the women said they saw him from the dead, but they didn't see him. You know, Jesus said, all these things are going to take place. And when Jesus said, why are you so downcast? They said, well, these things have happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, what things? Just kind of egg them on. It's a Jesus question. He knew full well what things they were, but wanted to... They said, are you the only one who doesn't understand? And then they went on to tell them, and I quote from Luke 24. They told them about the things of Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we, here it is, were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it was the third day since these things happened. <laughs> Just like Jesus said. But also... Some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels. Okay, kind of store that back. A vision of angels they saw who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And so they were somber. And, and I'm sure as Peter heard these words, Peter's, or Jesus, heard, Jesus' heart probably sunk. Here I was the disciples. I explained it clearly to them. Suffer, then glory. I'm going to Jerusalem. Be handed over to chief priests. Be flogged and whipped. Condemned to death. Hand over to the Gentiles. Mocked and scourged. Crucified. And the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And these guys are saying, and it's the third day and we still haven't seen Him. It's like, I told you on the third day, that was the day I'm going to rise. You'll see me. But it's interesting though. At the moment of time in Luke 24, though the heart of Jesus sunk, he didn't, he didn't focus his attention upon his own words. He didn't say, you guys didn't believe me. What did he say? He said, oh, foolish men 
and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. He said, you guys didn't believe the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself in all the Scriptures. Jesus said the Scriptures clearly proclaimed His sufferings and then His glory. But surely it was His sufferings first. Then came His glory. What's the theme of Peter again? Suffer now, glory later. Right? And the parallel here in 1 Peter is almost exact. These disciples had failed to understand, as did these prophets, failed to understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They were trying to understand these things. They couldn't. And as a result, as verse 12 says, it is revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. I think the issue here is that they would never be privileged to see and understand the person in time of redemption. Which leads us into point number three. The prophets served us. The prophets served us. First half of verse 12a. And oh, how privileged we are. We have this food that the children in Africa would long to eat. And it has come to us. These prophets of the Old Testament have become our servants. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When you go to a restaurant... You sit down at your table. A waiter, waitress comes up to you and says, Hi, my name's Ted. I'll be taking care of you guys tonight. Here, you want some water? You want some time? Fills up our water. You know, sits you there. I'll give you a little bit of time. I'll be back in just a little bit. Goes off, does his duties, comes back. So, what would you like? Oh, you want these drinks? You want this food? Okay. And goes and brings the drinks to you and says, uh, Your food is, is getting ready here. Would you like some chips? Here, we'll give you some chips. And goes away, brings your food, checks back. Is there anything else you need? You need some ketchup, maybe? You need, SR always needs ketchup. You need some A1 steak sauce. What do you need? And periodically, how are things going? And if ever you're sitting there at the restaurant and you need something, you just, you flag down Ted and you say, Ted, can you come here? And Ted walks over here and he says, how may I help you? And whatever you tell him within the bounds of his uh, responsibility, he'll like, do for you. That's what the prophets have done for us. They have served us. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Zechariah, they have served us and they have served us well. They have told us of the coming of the Messiah. What they never understood, we now understand. We know the person and time of the coming of Messiah. The person. Who's the person? Jesus of Nazareth. And when was the time? How many years ago? About 2,000 years ago. We know the person and time that Messiah came and they didn't understand it. And we know how the sufferings of Christ relate to His glory. Right? The theme of 1 Peter again is what? Suffer now, glory later. It's the same story of the life of Messiah. He suffered while upon the earth. Through the death, burial, and resurrection, now He's in glory. See at the right hand of God. And we're simply called to walk the same path. As Jesus suffered and now He's entered His glory, so also you need to suffer and you also will enter into your glory as well. Turn over to chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Here's the same thing. Write down the very last verse. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Talking about through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is Jesus, verse 22, is at the right hand of God. That is glory. 
having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, it's not just the glory happened. It was the sufferings of Christ that brought the glories to follow because it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, He suffered in the flesh and now He's in glory. Since Christ has done that, you too follow in the same path of your Savior. Arm yourselves with the same purpose. As Christ suffered and then glory, so we need to arm ourselves the same purpose. Suffering now and then glory later. And this is so wonderful. Isn't it a comfort to know that God doesn't merely look down from His cosmic comfort chair and exhort us to endure our sufferings knowing nothing of it Himself? That's not God. God is not up there saying, oh, suffer you guys, and then maybe you'll learn it. No, He's saying, listen, I came down to be among you, and I suffered, and now I entered my glory, and you all follow the same path, and you will enter your glory as well. When Jesus said, follow me, He said, follow me in my sufferings, and follow me also in my glory. Jesus Himself experienced sufferings of life. He was tempted and yet without sin. When he was sinless, he suffered cruelly and unjustly at the hands of those who crucified him. And I would even argue the sufferings of Jesus were far more than just mere physical sufferings. Also, the wrath of God was due upon every sinner who would believe in Christ was laid upon him. And that's a lot of suffering that took place at the cross. Far greater than any suffering we would ever know. He's also experienced the glory of living now the victorious life. It says in chapter 4, verse 11, To Jesus Christ belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we have the opportunity to join Jesus in both these things. Look over in chapter 4, verse 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Here it is. You're suffering with Christ. You're supposed to rejoice. Why? So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Speaking about that day when we know Him, when He's revealed, we get to fully come in to inherit our inheritance and we can rejoice at that day. And 1 Peter 5.10 speaks about after you suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who brought this message of grace who called you into His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You're going to suffer for a little while. And the God of all grace who's brought the suffering upon you for your testing as it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. After you suffer just a little while, He's going to perfect you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. And someday, ultimately, you'll be with Him in glory. It's a message of 1 Peter. It's the model of Jesus. Suffer now, glory later. Well, coming back here now to verse 12, we see the prophets knew they were serving us in these things. They knew they weren't serving themselves, but they were serving you. They knew about these things. The coming Messiah would always remain a mystery to them. But they knew that another generation would have an opportunity to fully know them. That was the generation of Peter's day. And really, in some, it's a generation of our day. These prophets were not serving themselves, but were serving us. And I ask you, do you realize what it is you possess today in your salvation? Do you realize it? These prophets longed to see the coming of the Messiah. 
In fact, at one point in the ministry of Jesus, He told His disciples how blessed they were to see the day. Matthew 13, 16 and 17. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you hear and did not see it. And to hear what you hear but did not hear it. And and I do believe that the blessings that were extended to the disciples in some measure are greater for us. Yes, the disciples had the opportunity to witness the pinnacle of history. The cross is the pinnacle of history. It's what everybody looked forward to. It's what we now look back upon. It's what will be the song in heaven, the slain lamb. Yes, the disciples had the opportunity to witness the pinnacle of history. Yes, they were with the Messiah. They heard His message. But as they went through these things, it was a blur to them. They didn't understand. And it was only later when Peter was writing that he understood clearly what was taking place. It was then that their eyes were opened to fully understand. And we are the recipients of the apostles' testimony. We can hear their testimony and believe it. And in fact, we have come through the apostles and heard this, right? In these things, verse 12 says, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We've been served well by the prophets. All the prophets longed for, they have given to us. The apostles took it, understood it, and then that message had been preached to us. And notice how the message has come to us. It's come to us by the Holy Spirit. Many of us have received the message of Christ and we receive the blessings that have come. And I say, what a wonderful thing it is to reflect back upon our lives and realize that it's the Holy Spirit that brought the message to each of us. Because the Holy Spirit works through the means of those who faithfully share the Gospel. Think about it. When you heard the Gospel for the very first time, the Holy Spirit was active in that process. He brought the gospel to you, right? These things have now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel. Fundamentally, it was by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Spirit of God sent from heaven, empowering believers to share this gospel with others. And I say every time the gospel comes, it comes by aid of the Spirit. You know, see the divine activity upon this. And I think it's profitable for us even to think about who first shared the gospel with you. How did you hear first hear of it. Maybe it was your mother. Maybe it was your uncle. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a preacher. Maybe it was a Christian book that taught you the way of the truth. Maybe you heard something on the radio. Maybe your experience is a combination. I can't remember the first time I heard it. And some of you probably can remember the first time I heard the gospel. Those who are converted later in life. But those of us who have known about Jesus since our childhood, um, it's kind of difficult to know who it is. But whoever it is, And however it's come, as often as it's come, it's come by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And those of us who have believed in the gospel ought to continue to marvel at God's wonderful grace. I mean, what an amazing thing it is that God Himself would enter humanity. He would live a perfect and sinless life, die upon the cross as a sacrifice for sin, raised from the dead, so that those who believe in Him would have eternal life conquering death. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just tell you, the forgiveness of sins is the greatest blessing 
that any of you will ever experience. Your greatest experience isn't buying your first house. I know, Brian, you and Jody just bought your first house. It's a great blessing. But that's not the best. You've had some water problems, right? And I know, Anna, I talked to your dad. You, you bought like a, I forget what it was, like a duplex or something. And that like next day you had water in your basement, didn't you? What is a blessing in this earthly life is not our greatest blessing. Everything else you have, your car, you'll crash your car. It'll grow old. It'll rust. Your money flies away like wings. But the blessing of forgiveness will endure forever. And as David wrote, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so great are these blessings that the angels delight to see us enjoy our salvation. And that's my fourth point. We hear the angels long to look. We've transitioned now from the prophets. The prophets are road of grace. The prophets who studied hard and the prophets who served us. Now we're looking at the angels. It's kind of an afterthought for Peter, but it is a crucial thought. It is filled with much insight and joy. The angels long to look at your salvation. These words long to look are full of meaning. This word long, epithumeo, oftentimes translated lust. This is lust in a good way. Just it's a passionate desire that these angels have. And they long to look. This is the word that was used, paracuptos, when the disciples came into the grave. They had to look down and stoop to look in. Like when I'm looking for my crickets, right? They're stooping down and they're looking. And so these angels from heaven are inquisitive, really desiring to look and to see into our salvation. They long to see it. They love to see it. You don't have to say, hey guys, angels, hey, let's, let's, let's look at our, this salvation over here. And they don't go, eh, seen that. They say, oh, wow, you know, and they come. That's what these angels are. They look from heaven, longing to look at our salvation. A few months ago, I preached a message from Hebrews 2, verse 16, entitled, Helping People, Not Angels. And in that message, I sought to show you how God's ways are not our ways regarding the offer of salvation. God has not extended grace to angels who have sinned. Angels who have sinned, there's no chance for repentance. They have no chance to enter the glory of God. They're merely waiting for their day of final condemnation. And then there are angels who haven't sinned. And, and these angels, because they haven't sinned and are currently busy with the Lord, they know nothing of what it is to experience grace. They, they don't know what it is to, to sin and be forgiven and be restored completely with God simultaneously a sinner and yet justified. They don't know that. And I believe that that's the very reason why they long to look into our salvation. Because if you think about it, the angels know a lot about salvation. Think about what the angels know about salvation. When the birth of Jesus came and the shepherds were out abiding their flocks by night, it was angels who came and said, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy for today in the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. They knew that a Savior had been born that day long before many others knew. They ministered to Jesus throughout His ministry, especially at His temptation, after walking sinlessly against the onslaughts of the devil. After that was over, it says that Jesus was ministered to by the angels. The angels knew about His resurrection, being at the tomb, telling His disciples that He had risen. Remember when I, I read that from Luke 24? That these women had seen these angels had told them that He had been risen to go to Galilee. They were where He told you to go. Angels knew and saw that He had risen from the dead. And they believed. Some angels were present at the ascension of Jesus. 
Why do you look up into heaven? That's the same way that Jesus is going to go. I think those are probably angelic beings talking of them. Angels are fully aware of the joys of salvation. Luke chapter 15. Talking about the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. There's a, a verse there. So Luke 15, I forget what it is, verse 10 or 11. It says there's joy in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. The angels are fully aware of God's joy. And I think they have joy as well as they see sinners repent. Sinners, the angels look down upon the church and see the wisdom of God, how it is that God has made two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one, and they actually live in harmony together. Because of the forgiveness of Christ, Ephesians 3 speaks about that. And even now, angels are sent out to minister, sent out to render service for the sake of those who inherit salvation. Hebrews 1, verse 14. In eternity to come, many angels will join the praise of the redemption song of the Lamb. Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So you think about what the angels know. They knew of Messiah when He came. They were intricately involved. They saw His resurrection. They knew His raised. They were involved. They, they know the joy that takes place when the sinner is converted. In fact, they are even sent out helping those of us who are saved walk through this life, protecting us, guiding us, guarding us. They are in and around salvation. They know much about salvation. In fact, they probably even know more about salvation than we do. But the angels don't know what it means to experience grace. They don't know what it is to experience grace. And that's what they're longing for. What, what are they thinking? What's it like? What's it like to be redeemed? I think about... Um, Sports interviews, you know, immediately after a football game. What do they do? They get the camera, get you. Oh, yeah. Coach, coach, what were you thinking with that play on fourth and two? Why did you do an end around? You know, and the coach will then respond with what he was doing or, or where he was going or what he was thinking. Or the player, you know, ah, what were you thinking when you scored that touchdown? You know, and puts the microphone way up there and... Well, I just—I was just trying to catch the ball. <laughs> but those kind of questions are such because all of us are inquisitive and want to know what the experience of actually doing that was like or what were they thinking or how were they being involved in that. And that's likewise with the angels. The angels long to talk to us say, what was it like to be saved by grace? What was it like to experience grace? They long to look into that. They marvel at that. If could, they would interview us and talk to us and speak to us. What it's like as we know the grace of God in our souls. Well, the Proverbs speak of some wonderful things that humans marvel at. Proverbs 30, verse 18 and 19. There are three things too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. We marvel at the, at the eagle. He's got his wings out like this and flying around and soaring around in circles and then, and then catching the thermal and going up and swinging around, right? You ever marveled at flying eagles like that? We marvel at, at snakes that can slither around without any feet. They just, they just How do they do that? Or ships in the sea. When we were on vacation this past summer in San Francisco, there was this one ship 
it was like absolutely humongous. And I went, whoa! And I took my camera out and took about three, four, five pictures trying to catch the, the magnitude. I mean, they had these containers which looked like Lego blocks on this huge ship. And a man with a maid. I love weddings because you get to see newlyweds, right? Pledging their love for one another. And you watch that. And you marvel at that. And we could add to the list of the Proverbs many other things. The sunset. Um, I was just out Friday night. And my wife said, Steve, look at the sky. Look at the sunset. Whoa. We marvel at the animal kingdom. When uh, Roxy gets her lunch, we're all like, whoa, looking at this. We marvel at these things. We marvel at the colors of the leaves and the trees. Pretty soon, a couple weeks from now, some of you will go to a park someplace and find all these trees and walk through the park and go, whoa, look at these. This is beautiful. In fact, I know Gordy and Ruthie are, are even traveling to see the, the mountains. The Aspens, I think. Just to, to see the mountains, the Grand Rapids. Whoa, look at that. We marvel at nicely furnished homes. Not just nature. My, uh, Friday evening, my wife and I were, went to the Parade of Homes in Rockford. Have you done that before, some of you? None of you? None of you have been on the Parade of Homes. Okay, some of you. Okay, good. And um, we've never done it before, but we've, we got into some homes selling for more than $500,000. And we, whoa, look at that woodwork. Whoa, look at the size of that bathroom. We walked into one place in the bathroom and like just kept going on and on and on and on. At the end of it, this huge closet. It's amazing. These tall ceilings. These nice porches. Huge windows. Big garages. And we look at that and say, wow. It's a big house. You know, I could go on and on and on. I'm sure you give me experience of things that you just marvel at. But listen, so likewise do the angels look at us and marvel our salvation. They said, Greg Christensen, wow, look what God's done in your heart. Especially you, Greg. That's why I chose you as an example. <laughs> look at Darcy Robine and say, wow, look what God's done in your heart. Doug Sosnowski, wow, look what God has done there. They marvel at our experience of grace. Yet sadly, sometimes we don't marvel at, at our own experience. I think it's because there's something about us that turns the spectacular into the ordinary. I mean, think about your living conditions. Where every single one of you live. It's an amazing place. You go into a place and you go, boop, light. You say, ooh, it's cold in here. You go like this. You go, boop. And in an hour, it's like, oh, look, it's warm. Or you walk inside, you go, "Ah, man, it's hot. And you go, boop. And in a little bit, an hour or so, the house is cool. Clean your house. You just take out this thing. Plug it in the wall. You know, it sucks up all the dirt. Your clothes are dirty. You just slap them in the sink. You know, it starts to go around and washes your clothes. You have food which is cold. You need... I want it warm. So you put it in the microwave. You know, and uh, in two minutes, it's piping hot. You can't even stand the taste of it. You have hot water on demand. You have a car that allows you to travel hundreds of miles in climate control. It doesn't matter if it's zero degrees outside or 100 degrees outside. You're cruising along at 68 degrees. Hundreds of miles. We have telephones without wires. You can call anybody anywhere in the United States. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? (laughs) Now think about someone from 200 years ago. What would they do when they walked among us? They go, wow. 
You mean you don't have to light a kerosene lamp, only have this dim little... You can just do this and bam! You mean no need to chop down your wood to get the firewood to bring it in and make dirty? No need to heat your bathing water before you bathe? No need to hit your horses for... And you can go how far? You can talk to somebody on the other side of the world? Wow! They would be blown away. And yet, what do we do? When a child spills Kool-Aid on the carpet, we get all upset. Oh, you're ruining the carpet! <laughs> get a clue. You have carpet. I mean, that's like new since vacuum cleaners, I think. Maybe they had some throw rugs. But we turn the spectacular into the ordinary. When tourists come to the Grand Canyon... What do they do? They got their cameras out and they're click, 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 whoa. And they're going, whoa, whoa. What about the guides to the Grand Canyon? You ever seen a guide to the Grand Canyon? Oh, click, click, whoa, look at that. Click, click, click. They don't do that because they've seen it so much and it's not quite so amazing to them. And I'll just say regarding your salvation, your salvation is like the Grand Canyon. It is. We are the Grand Canyon and angels are tourists. We experience it firsthand. And to us, well, maybe at first it was breathtaking, but maybe to us it's kind of worn away. But to the angels who haven't experienced grace in their souls, it's all amazing. They want to hear, witness it firsthand. They want to hear more about it. They want to see it. They long to look into it. Well, I simply ask you by way of conclusion this morning, do you realize the treasure that you have in your salvation? Do you realize what God has done for your soul if indeed you've entrusted your soul to Christ? If indeed you've embraced Him, been born again, been changed, are a servant? Do you realize what has happened in your life? Because the prophets wrote about it. The prophets studied to understand about it. The prophets actually were serving us in it. And the angels longed to look into our salvation. I say, do you, do you treasure it? Because treasuring it is really the first step of overcoming trials in life, which were Peter's going. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And my, my aim today has really been to, to show you how great our salvation is. That I might create in you a desire to just cherish it, just to realize what you have. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I, I would pray that you, in your grace and mercy, would show us what we would be like apart from your grace. Lord, show us how valuable our salvation is. Even as Peter said in chapter 1, verse 7, that our redemption, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it's pure gold tested by fire. I pray that we might realize how, how, how coveted our salvation is, how much the prophets long to have what we have. How there are starving children in Africa and we have food on our table. How there are people dying in their sins and yet we've been redeemed from our sins. We have experienced grace in our hearts and our souls. We have seen the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us nailed to the cross.
We have seen the, the just pay for the sins of the unjust so that you might bring us to God. We have seen Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. We experience that to know that. So now we can be just like sinless angels, even though we've sinned greatly. Lord, I pray you teach us to treasure our salvation, that we might be able to walk through these days with joy and thanksgiving and adoration of you. I pray in Christ's name.